Greetings, greetings, greetings on this Talk About It Tuesday, May 2nd, 2023. Today's read is going to be a bit of, well, a combination of several articles that have to do with how anti-blackness affects day-to-day life, the ins and outs of anti-blackness. And it sparked from a recent conversation about movies. Now, for me, if I'm going to be entertained, I like movies about how we love each other, like um, genuinely, authentically, sweetly, like the joy of love. Love is a good thing between a man and a woman. I, I like that. I like to see it. I like the intricacy of it, all of that. And so I was um, I was at work and I can play movies in the background and I was watching something. So one of my coworkers was like, what are you watching? And what was I was watching Beyond the Lights. And she was like, yeah, I like those kind of movies, but I love slave movies. And I was like, what? I'm not what you're not going to see is a slave movie on my screen here at work because, yeah, I'm not. And she was like, I get it, but I like to, like, I want to teach my kids history. I want to know history. I want to teach my kids history, but my kids don't want to watch that. And I was like, I feel your kids because I don't want to watch that either. Like, how many slave movies do we have? How many slave movies are out there? She was like, a lot. I saw her the only one that I watch more than once. I love Django. I can't lie. I love when he burned down the whole house, go save his woman. Again, back to that love between a man and a woman. I like that. I love to see it. And she laughed or whatever. But then she was like, but it's important to have an understanding of why white people are the way they are. And so I had to ask. I was like, you think that you get that from watching slave movies? I'm just curious. No judgment. Just curious. She was like, we have to know history. It's uncomfortable sometimes, but... So I had to put it to her. I was like, look, the reason I don't like slave movies is is because it portrays the lie that black people's history began in slavery. That's not true. So she just was looking at me like, what are you talking about? So I pulled up a picture of the Benin bronzes as an example. I said, you see this artwork, the intricacy of it, the metallurgy, the the metals that they used, the Benin bronzes were made from metal. This art is not just art to be looking at, it's spiritual, it takes skill, it takes intelligence, high level intelligence, And this was way created way before Europeans ever knew the continent of Africa existed. And so she was staring at the pictures I showed her for a long time. And she was fascinated with her. And she was like, to be honest, I never even heard of anything about us before slavery other than Africans were savages, like just in the jungles, in the savages, in the savages, savages in the jungle. So Hollywood has long practiced anti-blackness. 
a white man came to went to Africa swinging through the trees and, and you know Tarzan right Hollywood images um, the founding fathers of America it, it's, it's very intricate anti-blackness is very intricate and um, what it attempts to do is to take our insides out, out of us and leave us empty downplay, deny, dismiss our story, our truth, and replace our stories with their definitions of of us, for us. Even resorting to outright lies. For example, Mungo Park. I learned about Mungo Park because um, a couple of African artists sang about him. Uh, most notably for me is uh, Burning Boy. And in an article on cigarjukebox.com, they spoke about it too. The lyrics to, um, which song was it? I'm not sure which song was it, but he spoke about it. They said that Berna concisely conveys how white power and racism is constructed on lies perpetrated against Africans. He explains because the teacher them teaching what the white man them teaching the European teachings in my African school. So fuck the classes in school. Fuck Mungo Park and the fool that said they found the River Niger. They've been lying to you. Mungo Park was a Scottish explorer in the late 1700s who wrote about the Niger River and how he, quote unquote, discovered it while exploring Africa. This then led to future colonization by the English in the 1800s. Uh, the verse on Berna's song documents how the white power system uses education to rewrite history and put itself at the center of power. The lie of white men discovering the Niger River discounts and devalues the Africans who lived along the Niger River for centuries prior to white European exploration. The underlining message for Burna Boy is that in education, white history and white men are deemed important. And any history before that, because history did not start with the European exploration of Africa. Africa was there living. How, how, you, how are you gonna discover something that was there the same way they did with Native Americans? indigenous Americans. Um, so co-opting history is similar with the Native Americans. That's what this article is saying. Aboriginal communities in Australia went through the same thing. Also used by the daughters of the Confederacy who seek to whitewash history of slavery in the United States. Burnham Boy points out that this is all power built on lies and it is time to reject this false history. But for my readings today, I want it to be understood that it's not just external oppression. Anti-blackness is not just external. These centuries of lies on the African continent and all around the world have served to internalize, have oppression be internalized by those being oppressed and internalized oppression damn
Those are the layers we have to take off. So the ins and outs of anti-blackness is what I'm going to explore today. Let's go. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The song I was referring to is Monsters You Made. It's track 12 on his twice as tall album and it really speaks to anti-blackness at work in his country in his home country of Nigeria at the end of the track he says since we met you people 500 years ago look at us we have given everything you are still taking in exchange for that we've got nothing nothing and you know it and as speaks volumes, uh, the kingdom of Benin was, is thousands of years old. And it's interesting that we can see the Benin bronzes, those of us who have seen pictures of them, or even those who have seen them in real life, they're available to see in the British Museum in London. You can see the intricacy the brilliance of a kingdom, a people, a civilization, an empire that created such things and still believe the lies that these people were just sitting there waiting for white people to come and tell them about civilization. No, that is a pure lie, a pure white lie. Um, But this article gets into one particular collector and him wanting to return the art that belongs to Nigeria. The article is on www.cnn.com. The title is A Curator's Museum is Filled with Looted African Art. Now He Wants It Returned. Written by Kieran Monks for CNN and it was published December 3rd of 2020. The kingdom of Benin took centuries to build and just a few days to raise to the ground. In February 1897, British forces stormed the ancient kingdom's capital city with rockets, shells, and Maxim guns capable of firing 600 rounds per minute. A flotilla of warships joined the assault from adjacent waterways. Benin's defenders, fighting with blades and muskets, were swiftly massacred. The British burned the city and built a golf course on the ruins. So in reading that, I had to look up. There's golf courses in Nigeria. Looked it up. The oldest one is 1913. 
So a little over 15 years after they um, burned the ancient ruins. And before they burned it, though, they made sure to loot, I believe, just under a thousand pieces are in British museums right now. And this particular article is about a private collector. So some, a nice amount, are in museums, but there are quite a few pieces that are in private collectors' collections. So white people are highly, certain white people are highly aware of the history of African people, black people, the capabilities, the intelligence. Iron did not be, iron shaping and working and blades and stuff, it didn't start with Roman, with the Roman Empire, with um, Greek people. It started in Africa, just like everything else did. There are plenty of scholars who are very aware of it, but the lie is being perpetuated that black people were just, again, out there, I don't know, <laughs> just out there selling each other. And then so white people came and it was like, okay, we'll take them. And it wasn't white people's fault that they, you know, I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I try not to be cynical, but it's hard. Because when you learn your true history and you realize you have to dig under layers and layers and layers just to read your truth and to know that it's a constant, a constant anti-black teaching going on, dated right now somewhere in somebody's textbook. They are reading lies about black people right this very second. So, yeah, the kingdom of Benin. I'll continue with this article, but it just, it gets to me. Because my, my history matters. Not just because I want to be included with other people's stuff. But because my history is real. And it's been lied about. And that shit is not okay. It's really not. Um, what I did notice also in this article when they talked about how the British burned the city... But before they burned it, they looted it. It reminded me of exactly the same pattern. The way they handled uh, Black Wall Street. They did. They did a false accusation. Gave a false reason why they could come in and and had to fight. Had to have a war. And before they burned that city down. See, Benin was a whole empire huge, way bigger than Black Wall Street. But Black Wall Street was something that Black people built on their own, on their own, even after being enslaved, even after being segregated, even after being just all these different Jim Crow laws, all this kind of stuff going on, Black people still got together and built up places like Black Wall Street. And what did white people do? Burn it down. But before they burned it down, they looted. They looted, stole everything they could lift up and take away that wasn't theirs. Stole it. 
the pattern doesn't change. Anytime Europeans come in, they come in to steal. Thieves in the temple. And again, not every single white person, but the system, the pattern, the playbook is the same everywhere they go. And you know I'm telling the truth. Continuing with the article. Benin's defenders fighting with blades and muskets were swiftly massacred. The British burned the city and built a golf course on the ruins and the oldest golf course in Nigeria is 19 the is was built in the year of 1913. So I suppose that's where the city of Benin, the ancient kingdom of Benin used to be. Victorious soldiers also looted thousands of precious artifacts from shrines and palaces. Within months, the Benin bronzes were on display at the British Museum in London. Museum as a weapon. What an interesting concept. Mm. The bronzes, which are mostly made of brass, tell a story of life in the royal court through finely crafted renderings of kings, warriors, hunters with wild animals and foreign explorers. The treasures of Benin are now scattered across 160 museums and many more private collections around the world. Some of the bronzes are considered to be among the finest and most valuable African artworks with single pieces selling for millions of dollars. As a curator at the Pitt Rivers Museum of the University of Oxford, Dan Hicks presides over one of the world's largest collections of artifacts looted from Benin. But in his unsparing new book, The British, The Brutish <laughs> Museums, he makes a case for their return while calling for greater honesty in the telling of colonial history and the enabling role played by museums like his own. Hicks says his position was partly informed by the Roads Must Fall movement, which erupted in South Africa in 2015 and spread to the University of Oxford, where he serves as a professor of contemporary archeology. span Students demanded the removal of a statue of colonial tycoon Cecil Rhodes with, within a wider decolonization campaign that denounced the Pitt Rivers Museum as one of the most violent spaces in Oxford. Hicks accepts the charge. The museum was a weapon, as integral to imperial domination as the Maxim gun, he writes, that was used to legitimize, extend, and naturalize new extremes of violence within corporate colonialism. Exhibitions reduced cultures to trophies in glass cases in order to tell the story of the victory of Europeans over Africans, he said in a phone interview. They were used to inspire colonial administrators and soldiers who fought these wars and thought they were doing so in the name of civilization. The bronzes were feated as masterpieces, but they were presented as the work of inferiors. How? 
How am I inferior to you when I create this? You covet so much, you, you can't stand that it's mine. I created it. So you kill and you steal it and you burn whatever left so we can't create it again and you keep it for your own. Who is inferior? Who? Hmm. <sighs> Hicks quotes one British Museum curator saying that he was puzzled to account for so highly developed an art among a race so entirely bar barbarous as were the Bini, referring to the ethnic group, also known as the Edo people, that founded the kingdom of Benin. The author draws a parallel between these colonial era art displays and the pseudo-scientific exhibitions that compared fake skulls as evidence of racial hierarchies and were phased out after World War II. Due to their association with fascism, he believes the ongoing display of looted heritage amounts to a continued celebration of violence and white supremacy. And when it comes to white supremacy, I love how uh, the artist and entertainer, David Banner states, I don't call it white supremacy because words have power. I call it white insecurity because that's what it is. And for myself, in that same kind of vein, that same kind of energy, I call it institutionalized institutionalized whiteness, a systemic playbook that is used over and over again to serve the purpose of perpetuating anti-blackness, to condition us to give our energy, our essence away towards people, places, and things that do not serve our African self. I remember while I was in Ghana and I visited Elmina and Cape Coast castles and seeing the symbols that the Dutch still have there. Oh, I wish they would paint over them. But um, it me the the meaning of the symbols that I saw, according to the guide, that um, the tour guide said it meant. What did it, what did it mean? Make sure I have it right. It was a triangle, a circle, and a triangle, and it meant that they would be there eternally, that the Dutch would own it or have the trade or something like that eternally. They don't plan to leave. They do not plan to leave. Um, and they are still there in some capacity. Clear-cut case. Uh, Clear-cut case. Hicks books. Hicks's book focuses on the Benin bronzes, as he believes they represent an indisputable case for restitution, which Nigeria has sought since its independence from the British Empire in 1960. The Kingdom of Benin is located in what is now the southern Nigerian state of Edo. Drawing on accounts from soldiers and British officials, the author dismantles myths to tell a story of brutality and greed. Officially, the punitive expedition of 1897 was a response to an attack on a convoy led by Captain James Phillips, Consul General of the Niger Coast Protectorate, a month earlier. <laughs> 
Phillips and several of his men were killed by Benin troops while on a mission to ostensibly lobby the king of Benin over access to the valuable palm oil and rubber in his territory. So they, they're not supposed to protect themselves from British people, right? Anywho. But documents from protectorate leaders show plans for a punitive expedition were discussed as early as 1892. Phillips himself had written to Prime Minister Lord Salisbury requesting weapons for an invasion of Benin to ease the flow of commerce. In this light, Hicks argues the mission was designed to provide a pretext for attack. He also shows that such a large British force, which he estimates at around 5,000 men with 10 warships and 38 Maxim guns, could not have been assembled in the month between expeditions. So like I said, the playbook is the same. Make up a false reason to be able to demolish uh, anything that is owned by people that they want to conquer, but you want to make it look like in the history books that you were you were first attacked. It's always somebody else's fault, but the playbook tells its own truth. And um, eventually... <sighs> Chickens come home to roost. All these world wars. World War One, World War Two, that was all Europeans fighting Europeans. That was all white on white crime. It wasn't a world war. It was Europeans doing what they do to each other. And then finding a common ground by oh, we can all instead of fighting each other, we can all benefit from dividing up Africa. Let's, you know, get their resources and trade them among each other. So anti-blackness is a tool of power and control. Mm. The destruction of Benin was celebrated in British newspapers and soldiers received medals for their role in it, but Hicks disputes their supposed heroism. Accounts from military leaders describe indiscriminate slaughter from a safe distance, while warships destroyed towns and villages along their route. Eight British deaths were reported to the House of Parliament, but no effort was made to tally, to tally Benny losses, despite inquiries from ministers. The loss of heritage was also incalculable. The earthworks of Benin were once an archaeological marvel comprising a 16,000-kilometer network of walls. Wow. That formed one of the world's largest man-made structures. They were, along with palaces, homes, and religious sites, reduced to rubble. My goodness. British officials and museums downplayed the destruction and claimed damage was accidental. Why not why not just be like, yeah, we went in and we did that. We tore it down. Why why do Europeans, why do white people always want to do this fake smile, fake nice stuff? I can't stand that. British officials and museums downplayed the destruction and claimed damage was accidental. This is contradicted by the systematic approach Hicks reveals in Soldier's Diaries. Work to be done Saturday, February 20th, wrote Captain Egerton, chief of staff, staff for the expedition. Walls and houses to be knocked down. Queen Mother's house to be burnt. 
queen mother's house to be burnt. Hmm. Officially, looted artifacts were sold to pay the expedition costs, but Hicks cites a curator at the British Museum who later admitted much of the take was shared out carefully among the officers. A museum catalog revealed that bronzes were acquired via the liquidation of estates of old soldiers. Wow, growing movement. While Benin's experience may have been exceptional for the scale of destruction and the heritage lost, Hicks situates it within the routine practice of colonial pillaging during the scramble for Africa, as imperial powers carved up the continent into separate spheres of influence from the late 19th century to the breakout of World War I. Throughout this period, many prized African artifacts arrived in Western museums via violent conquest from sculptures taken by France in the sacking of Abomey to the gold looted by British soldiers from the Ashanti Empire. Hicks challenges museums like his to address and reject rather than defend the legacies of colonialism in their collections. The British museums is especially timely as calls for the reclamation of stolen heritage grow louder in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement. Activists have taken direct action to reclaim lost treasures and dispossessed nations have escalated long-running campaigns. The message is being heard around Europe. Germany recently established guidelines for restitution. The 2018 SAR Savoy report commissioned by the French government, meanwhile, found that 90% of the material cultural legacy of sub-Saharan Africa lies outside the continent and recommended that artifacts in France, a total of around 90,000 pieces, be made subject to return upon request. But action, oh, action, has been slow to materialize. France has thus far authorized the return of just 27 pieces to Benin and Senegal. European museums have offered loans rather than permanent returns, while Nigeria's government has resorted to buying Benin bronzes at a premium from auctions. He explains intransigence, intransigence from museums. As a sector, our leadership has tried to sweat this one out, he said. While his book invites readers to help break the impasse by joining the movement for restitution. Resisting returns, arguments against restitution have evolved since 1981 when the British Museum reportedly claimed the Benin bronzes were acquired legally as the British were the legitimate authority. Sir and ma'am, how are you the legitimate authority? Did you create that work? Did you you looted it, period. Oh, yes, the Black Panther scene when <laughs> Killmonger was like, yeah, we're taking my family stuff out this museum. That was so beautiful because that's clearly how it was going to need to be done. But anyway, 
the British were the legitimate authority. More recently, curators have argued that they are better placed to showcase cultural heritage. It's not your culture. You're better placed to showcase whatever culture is yours. Do that. It's not your culture. You couldn't care less about it. It's not yours. Fucking thief. And yes, I'm mad. And yes, I'm sharing my anger in this episode because this is freaking... Mm. In 2003, the British Museum's director made a case against returns on the basis that artifacts should be housed in safety, conserved, curated, researched, exhibited, and made available to the widest possible public. The British have also previously resisted requests to loan bronzes to Nigeria, claiming the pieces were too fragile to travel. That ain't none of your business. Oh, God. Everything bad that happens to these these kind of people, everything bad that happens in their homes, in their lives, in their personal lives, mm, they deserve it all. They deserve it all. Everything bad that the public that that's in their private, their private pains, oh, they deserve it all. Because this is just pure trash. But anywho. Um, too fragile to travel. Concerns have been raised about the standard of facilities to house the bronzes, although the British Museum has recently helped secure funding for a new museum in Benin City, Nigeria. Hicks notes that bronzes preserved for centuries at Benin's royal court have only been lost, neglected, or destroyed since arriving in London. So if they've been lost, neglected, or destroyed in London, how are they safer? His research led to the discovery of sculptures abandoned in broom cupboards and used as doorstops and ivory artifacts repurposed as piano keys and billiard balls. So disrespectful. French curators have pushed back against the Sar Savoy Report's recommendations, which could could leave much of their collections vulnerable to restitution. The authors say such fears are unwarranted and that claims will likely focus on a small portion, on a small proportion of objects with high symbolic value. Museums cite deaccession laws that prevent them from dispersing their collections, but Hicks's analysis shows that Hundreds of bronzes are held outside of national museums governed by such laws. He argues <clears throat> that national museums should establish a restitution framework for colonial loot similar to the Washington Principles, which require museums to proactively identify and return art that was taken by the Nazis. Curators have also suggested compromises, such as adding context about how items were acquired to their exhibits. That would be a start. Director of the V&A, Tristram Hunt, recently wrote in Prospect Magazine that he had changed how the museum presents items from the Ashanti Empire so as to explain their place within the ugly history of imperial trophy hunting. 
That is definitely a start. The road ahead. Hicks dismisses relabeling as a superficial ploy, very true, to avoid questions of ownership and meaningful action. Meaningful action. Meaningful action. He hopes to eventually see museums where nothing is stolen, where everything is present with the consent of all parties. This should begin with the with curatorial work for African collections that has long been neglected, he said, in order to establish exactly which pieces are held where. His book features an inventory of Benin bronzes in an attempt to track down those that are still missing. Hicks also plans to create databases for other lost works. And he has launched a project to document cases of looting on military expeditions. Where an item's provenance is established, the author and curator suggests that restitution claims proceed on a case-by-case basis through dialogue between claimants and museum trustees. Where objects are not sought for immediate return, a transfer of ownership could signal recognition of their origin in lieu of restitution. The priority for European curators should be to enable African scholars to study African heritage, he said, arguing that the progress of museums across the continent from Dakar to Benin City is a trend to be supported rather than obstructed. Hicks also believes Western museums can still play an important role providing education about the world's cultures, but only if they embrace radical change. The consequence of ignoring these questions is losing our social legitimacy, he said. And it is 2023, and I don't believe uh, those 900,000 pieces have been returned. Not quite sure how many, if any, have been returned. But yeah, that's at the crux of anti-blackness. Well, the external anti-blackness. And... He mentioned the scramble for Africa. So prior to the scramble for Africa, it was looting and burning and slave trading and all of that. And then when the Europeans decided to divvy up Africa, except for Ethiopia, because Ethiopia, Italy and Ethiopia had their battles, but Ethiopia kept its independence, was never colonized. The um, European scramble for Africa happened and the boundaries were drawn and anti-blackness was dispersed along with all of the other um, ideologies of those who feel like Africa and Africans are just European possessions no respect for humanity. And the problem with anti-blackness, of course, all of these things that I'm talking about, the problem with the external anti-blackness is obvious. What's not as obvious is the internalized oppression that happens when we internalize all of these things and we just... We act like our own internalized white man, <laughs> to, to put it. Well, how I'll demonstrate it 
is via some lyrics. I um, was listening to, um, I, I saw a trailer for the new Transformers movie. And to my surprise, I heard DMX like playing in the background. And I was like, because that's from my era. So now when these young kids, like, who is that? And they deep dive back into DMX, they're going to find different kinds of lyrics. And um, he was very poetic, but his lyrics were definitely anti-black. Like a lot of, like a lot of, I would say, contemporary, quote unquote, entertainment, whether it's movies or series like The Wire, movies like New Jack City. Um, if they got a message, I don't even know if The Wire had a message, to be honest. Um, series like Power, there's a message, but the anti-blackness is so ingrained in us to glorify stuff that's just, like I said, makes us go against our own well-being. Anti-blackness Anti-blackness has us going against our own well-being. The ins and outs of anti-blackness. Yes, we want to address systemic racism, but it's the internalized one that will take us out quicker than anything else. Let's take a look at it. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. Is that all the oh, I don't care crap? A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. a portion of the trailer for the newest Transformers movie coming out, I believe, June 9th, Transformers Rise of the Beasts. And it's being directed by Stephen Capel Jr., a young black director. He didn't write it, but he's definitely directing it. And I'm looking forward to the movie. I'm not knocking his use of DMX lyrics or even Biggie lyrics um, the movie, the premise of the movie is they're in 1994 Brooklyn and then they discovered the Transformers or something like that. I don't know, but I know it's 1994 Brooklyn and DMX and Biggie were big back then. And I sing along to it. I was there for it, but I didn't recognize the anti-blackness in their lyrics. And the thing is, I can't stop it. It's bigger than me. It's ingrained into um, American society. And American society is exported exported to the rest of the world. So the imagery about black people is, is coming, is seemingly coming from us. 
The problem is when that's the only thing being talked about, like our culture is only struggle and pain and violence and poverty and unwellness, holistic unwellness. And that's not, that's another lie about who we are because our true wealth is in our health like anybody else. But the perpetuation, let me, um, I have a definition of anti-blackness. Now, if you do a search for anti-blackness, it's going to come up with different definitions. Some of the definitions, of course, is going to be by white people. White men, white white women defining everybody but themselves. The definition I'm going to provide is from the National Black Cultural Information Trust. And their website, well, according to their website, their mission is pan-African initiative that uses communications, media, and cultural storytelling to share information and resources that correct and challenge cultural misinformation and disinformation surrounding racial slash ethnic identity, anti-blackness, and other false narratives that harm our communities. Our work aims to uplift the collective survival and freedom of black communities through informative resources. Our work is centered on embracing collective cultural memories from the Black community and Pan-African world as tools for education and solutions. And their definition of anti-Blackness is, anti-Blackness is the manifestation of racist and prejudiced beliefs and or ideologies that are hostile towards people of African descent especially those that are identifiably Black according to skin tone and racial categories. Anti-Blackness relies heavily upon dehumanizing and false narratives about African and identifiably Black people and their cultures. It also relies upon the historical erasure of African and African-descended people. Anti-blackness can be perpetuated by people of any ethnicity or racial background, including other black people that have embraced white supremacist ideas. So I would never try to say that DMX or Biggie Smalls embraced white supremacist ideas. What I will say is I I myself, people in my family, friends, people I work with, we have, there's a problem of internalized oppression because we, that's what we've been fed. Our K through 12 books literally tell lies about us as people and dismiss any greatness about us and attribute everything to what Europeans brought to us and saved us from and taught us. Oh, no, that's not true. That's not true. So when I'm looking at the um, lyrics that are going to be, that are in that song that's in that Transformers movie, I just know 
it is anti-blackness on the screen. And it, and these kind of things live for a long time. Both DMX and Biggie have passed from this life, this physical life. But their lyrics, what they leave behind lives on. And that can that's what we can work on. We can't change where white people want to... Those white people in the world who are anti-black and who perpetuate the system and fight against any kind of changes. But what we can do is work on healing ourselves, being our most well selves from the inside out. So I'm going to take a look at the Rough Rider Anthem lyrics that are very anti-black. It needs to be understood. This is not okay. Not if we want to be well. It's okay if you want to be unwell. It's okay. That's a choice. But if you want to be well, if you want to pro- promote wellness among your friends, family, children, those who's coming after you, you got to recognize unwellness when you hear it and see it and feel it and taste it and smell it. So, the Rough Rider Anthem lyrics. Niggas want to try. Niggas want to lie. Then niggas wonder why. Niggas want to die. All I know is pain. All I feel is rain. How can I maintain with that shit on my brain? I resort to violence. My niggas move in silence. Like you don't know what our style is. New York niggas the wildest. My niggas is with it. You want it? Come and get it. Took it, then we split it. You fucking right we did it. What the fuck you gonna do when we run up on you? Fucking with the wrong crew. Don't know what we going through. I'ma have to show niggas how easily we blow niggas. When you find out there's some more niggas that's running with your niggas. Nothing we can't handle. Break it up and dismantle. Light it up like a candle just cause I can't stand you. Put my shit on tapes like you busting grapes. Think you holding weight? Then you haven't met the apes. Stop, drop, shut them down, open up shop. Oh no, that's how rough riders roll. Stop, drop, shut them down, open up shop. Oh no, that's how rough riders roll. Is y'all niggas crazy? I'll bust you and be Swayze. Stop acting like a baby. Mind your business, lady. Nosy people get it too when you see me spit at you. You know I'm trying to get rid of you. Yeah, I know. It's pitiful. That's how niggas get down. Watch my niggas spit rounds. Make y'all niggas kiss ground just for talking shit, clown. Oh, you think it's funny? Then you don't know me, money. It's about to get ugly. Fuck it, dog. I'm hungry. I guess you know what that mean. Come up off that green. Rob niggas on ravine. Don't make it a murder scene. Give a dog a bone. Leave a dog alone. Let a dog roam and he'll find his way home. Home of the brave. My home is a cage. Hey, yo, I'm a slave till my home is a grave. I'm a pull capers. It's all about the papers. Bitches caught the vapors and now they want to rape us. Look what you done started. Ask for it. You got it. Had it. Should have shot it. Now you're dearly departed. Get at me, dog. Did I rip shit? With this one here, I flip shit. Niggas know when I kick shit, it's gonna be some slick, slick, slick shit. What was that look for when I walked in the door? 
Or you thought you was raw? Boom, not anymore. Because now you on the floor wishing you never saw me walk through that door with that 44. Now it's time for bed. Two more to the head. Got the floor red. Yeah, that nigga's dead. Another unsolved mystery is going down in history. Niggas ain't never did shit to me. Bitch ass niggas can't get to me. Gots to make the move, got a point to prove, gotta make them groove, gotta make them, got them all like, ooh. So the next time you hear this nigga rhyme, try to keep your mind on getting coochie and crime. Stop, drop, shut him down, open up shop. Talk is cheap, motherfucker. <sighs> so yeah. Can you see, hear, feel, taste the anti-blackness and that playing on the radio over and over and over and over again? And now it's 2023 and it's in the new Rough Rough Riders. It's in the new Transformer movie. So a new generation of black people are going to be singing that over and over and over and over again. Mm. Another article, call it what it is, anti-blackness. When black people are killed by the police, racism isn't the right word. But before I get to that article, I want to read this article that's in Forbes magazine. And you, you hear a lot of black people talking about Forbes magazine because capitalism, money, money is God in America. Money, guns, it's God, you know? That's across the races um, and ethnicities. And this particular article is written by Janice Gassam Asare, uh, titled, How Communities of Color Perpetuate Anti-Blackness. And it's found on www.forbes.com. As race relations continue to dominate the public conversation. Let me see what date. Ah, 2020, that year. This, um, this was published July 19th, 2020. As race relations continue to dominate the public conversation, there is a broadening of understanding and perspectives taking place. Merriam-Webster recently announced that the definition of racism would be changing to reflect systemic oppression. Oh, so it it didn't say that before 2020. Interesting. Based on this new definition, racism is not only ill feelings towards someone based on their race, but can also be conceptualized as a system of power and privilege used to oppress those who do not have that same power and privilege in society. There is a commonly held belief that white people are the only perpetrators of racism and anti-black bias, and that as a person of color, POC, you do, cannot hold racist views. Adopting this mindset would make deconstructing anti-blackness much more challenging. One phenomenon that is rarely discussed is the idea of white agency, 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 what is that? While the term hasn't been fully defined in a lot of detail, it can be thought of as the benefits 
received by a person of color because of their proximity to whiteness. Adjacency. Ah, one phenomenon that is rarely discussed is the idea of white adjacency. While the term hasn't been fully defined in a lot of detail, it can be thought of as the benefits received by a person of color because of their proximity to whiteness. Sometimes the benefits received are unbeknownst to the individual on the receiving end, and other times individuals actively seek these benefits through changing their appearance, their mannerisms, their behaviors, and even the way they speak. The perceived benefits of white proximity can be a driving force that prompts persons of color to adopt anti-black views and behaviors. In order to dismantle systems of oppression, an honest and open conversation about anti-blackness in communities of color must be had. How does anti-blackness manifest in communities of color and what can be done to dismantle it? One, putting lighter skin on a pedestal. A quick peruse of the media will reveal that lighter-skinned individuals in communities of color are highlighted and promoted more often. Examples of this can be found by analyzing popular films and TV shows. Singer Amara La Negra made headlines a few years ago when she shared her experiences with racism and colorism that is rampant in the Latinx community. A 2011 documentary called Dark Girls explore the systemic oppression that darker-skinned women face around the world. Governmental policies can also reinforce anti-blackness. An example of this can be found by examining the complicated relationship between the Dominican Republic and their island neighbor, Haiti. Reader's note, I told that co-worker that I talked about earlier, I also informed her that the Dominican Republic and Haiti are literally one island. They're the same land mass. She was blown away by that. I was too when I found out. I thought Dominican Republic and Haiti were two different countries. They had one country just separated by um, a border, but it's one land mass. Interesting. She was like, how is that possible? I said, because co- European colonizers, France colonized that side of the island, which was Haiti, and Spain colonized the side that is the Dominican Republic. So um, in 2015, the Dominican Republic announced that the country would be deporting Haitians in an effort to, quote unquote, cleanse their population. Uh-uh. Many felt that the Dominican Republic was unfairly targeting those with darker skin. India has also had pervasive issues with colorism through their caste system. Within some parts of India, caste systems still determine educational and economic opportunities. To remedy this widespread and persistent issue, greater awareness about the impacts of colorism is needed. Within the United States, there has been a more concerted effort to feature the diversity of skin tones within ethnicities. For, lo- for long-term changes, these efforts must continue. This writer is full of shit. <laughs> this writer is full of shit. As if the United States is a leader on diversity. Please. How did, they, how, did they, how did India 
Haiti and Dominican Republic even come to the idea that lighter skin is is more uh, uh what do you call it favorable that's that european that's that institutionalized whiteness that's that white fear of everybody else is better so let me act like i'm better is today come on man number 2 perpetuating anti-black views the first place where our views are shaped and molded is through our family Parents in communities of color often perpetuate anti-Black views and pass these views on to their children. Comedian George Lopez explained this in a 2017 stand-up segment where he indicated that in Latino families, there are two rules. Don't marry a Black person and don't park in front of the house, which is crazy because there's a lot of Afro-Latinos Lopez received a lot of backlash for his statements, but some say there is truth behind every statement said in jest. Other ways that parents can perpetuate anti-black views is by telling children not to go out in the sun so that their skin won't get darker. It is important to understand that being a non-black person of color does not absolve you from being prejudiced. Persons of color can still hold views that are deeply anti-black, adopting the viewpoint that persons of color cannot hold anti-black views, undermines efforts to curtail oppression and prevents communities of color from looking inwardly to understand the role they've played in continuing anti-black bias. Very true, very true. Three, encouraging assimilation. Those who live and work in majority white environments have likely adopted several practices to assimilate with the dominant culture. These survival tactics include, but are not not limited to, changing one's hair to mimic more Eurocentric hairstyles, code switching, and even quote-unquote acting white. While these assimilation techniques were once deemed necessary for surviving and thriving in white spaces, the argument could be made that adhering to white social norms further upholds anti-blackness. Something as simple as being who you are, speaking in a way that's most comfortable to you, and wearing your hair in the way that it grows out of your head is revolutionary. For centuries, black people have had to adhere to social norms that were created by the dominant culture. Parents telling their children to straighten their hair or talk a certain way to be accepted does not encourage and celebrate blackness, but rather sends the message that to be hired liked, accepted, and valued, one must change to fit what is deemed appropriate and acceptable by white culture. While that is very true, the thing is, parents weren't just telling their kids that they lived it themselves. There's a law, I forgot what year the law came out, but I know it's it's been in um, a recent law, the Crown Law, because people were being sent home from school for wearing their natural hair or not being hired for wearing the you know their hair how it grows out of their head so again this this article is not telling a lie but it i mean it's telling the truth about perpetuating anti-blackness but it's that's the struggle that's that's what's hard about trying to be a quote unquote quote-unquote success 
in a country that's based off of hatred, racialized hatred and lies. Because when you walk into a, 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 a corporation, there's a certain, even, even the colors, because the suits are supposed to be like, the business suit is gray or blue. I remember Barack Obama as the president of the United States wore a tan suit. And there were all of this, there was all of this uproar because the white male mindset is blue, black, certain muted color that like the grays and the blues and the black. Black people, <laughs> we like color. Now I'm not talking about our beautiful brown skin. I'm talking about yellow and red and orange and, you know, life-giving colors that you see when you go to the Caribbean. When you go to Miami, you see it on the houses. When you go to New Orleans, when you go to South Carolina where the Gullah people have the blue houses and all of that stuff, we like color. White people come from Europe and rain and London and it's gray and dreary and drab and cold and ice and Neanderthals and all of that stuff. So, I mean, that's their culture. And no, the thing is, nobody tries to stop white people from doing doing what they do. Do what y'all do. Everybody has goodness and in, in, in whatever in them. And that's your culture. Do what you do. It's white people who try to stop everybody else from living their lives in a violent way. And violence is not always physical. Erasing people's history, lying about people's history, stealing their history and their culture, and and then giving yourself the credit for it, that's violent. So while it's true that black parents do tell their children, do your hair this way or whatever, my own mother didn't want me to straighten my hair. I was 12 years old and I was like, because... I wanted to do what everybody else was doing. And she was like, your hair is fine. And I finally, at the age of 12, she let me get a perm. It had nothing to do with my mother. And I'm telling you from out of my own mouth, a black woman who grew up in America, my mother did not make me get a perm or tell me or encourage me to get a perm. She told me my hair was fine. But I wanted a perm because that's what everybody else was doing. We are not our children's only teachers. The world is the teacher. That's why what's on the screen and what's on the radio and what's online and what's in books matters. All of it does. And all of us are responsible for the reason that anti-blackness has been perpetuated the way it has. But continuing... Uh, For centuries, black people have had to adhere to social norms that were created by the dominant culture. Parents telling their children to straighten their hair or talk a certain way to be accepted does not encourage and celebrate blackness, but rather sends the message that to be hired, liked, accepted, and valued, one must change to fit what is deemed appropriate and accepted by white culture. If society is ever going to disrupt deconstruct and dismantle anti-blackness, there must be a normalization of blackness. Ashe. Rather than changing oneself to be accepted, standing in all your glory, 
will be what chips away at anti-blackness and dismantles systems of oppression. Okay. I did I did like that that ending to that article. And the last article is the one um opinion call it what it is, anti-black anti-blackness. When black people are killed by the police, racism isn't the right word. Okay. This is a New York Times article written by Kiana Mariah Ross. Dr. Ross is a professor of African-American studies, and it was published on June 4th of 2020. The word racism is everywhere. It's used to explain all the things that cause African-Americans suffering and death, inadequate access to health care, food, housing and jobs, or a police bullet, baton, or knee. But racism fails to fully capture what Black people in this country are facing. The right term is anti-Blackness. To be clear, racism isn't a meaningless term, but it's a catch-all that can encapsulate anything from Black people being denied fair access to mortgage loans to Asian students being burdened with a model minority label. It's not specific. Many Americans awakened by watching footage of Derek Chauvin's killing George Floyd by kneeling on his neck are grappling with why we live in a world in which black death loops in a tragic screenplay scored with the wails of childless mothers and the entitled indifference of our murderers. And an understanding of anti-blackness is the only place to start. Anti-blackness is one way some black scholars have articulated what it means to be marked as black in an anti-black world. It's more than just racism against black people. That oversimplifies and defangs it. It's a theoretical framework that illuminates society's inability to recognize our humanity, the disdain, disregard, and disgust for our existence. The African-American studies professor Frank B. Wilderson, who coined the term Afro-pessimism, argues that anti-blackness indexes the structural reality so that in the larger society, blackness is inextricably tied to slaveness. While the system of U.S. chattel slavery technically ended over 150 years ago, it continues to mark the ontological position of black people. Thus, in the minds of many, the relation between humanity and blackness is an antagonism, is irreconcilable. Anti-blackness describes the inability to recognize black humanity. It, cap- it captures the reality that the kind of violence that saturates black life is not based on any specific thing a black person better described as a person who has been racialized black, did. The violence we experience isn't tied to any particular transgression. It's gratuitous and unrelenting. Anti-blackness covers the fact that society's hatred of blackness and also its gratuitous violence against black people is complicated by its need for our existence. For example... For white people, again, better described as those who have been racialized white, the abject inhumanity of the black reinforces their whiteness, their humanness, 
their power and their privilege, whether they're aware of it or not. Black people are at once despised and also a useful counterpoint for others to measure their humanness against. In other words, while one may experience numerous compounding disadvantages, at least they're not black. So when we're trying to understand how a white police officer could calmly and casually channel the weight of his entire body through his knee on a black man's neck, a man who begged for his life over eight for over eight full minutes until he had no air left with which to plead. We have to understand that there has never been a moment in this country's history where this kind of treatment has not been the reality for black people. From whips to guns, the slave patrols of the 18th century are the ancestors of modern-day police departments. Mr. Floyd's killer just happened to make the news, happened to have video footage documenting his desperate screams to his deceased mother for help from the other side. Mr. Floyd's brutal killing is not an exception, but rather it is the rule in a nation that literally made black people into things. Black people were rendered as property, built this country, spilled literal blood, sweat, and tears into the soil from which we eat, the water we drink, and the air we breathe. The thingification of black people is a fundamental component of the identity of this nation. Reckoning with this reality is significantly more difficult than wrestling with prejudice, racism, and even institutional or structural racism, and it does more than any of these concepts do to help us make sense of over 400 years of Black suffering, of our unremitting, interminable pain, interminable pain, rage, and exhaustion. Mr. Floyd's death is the story of our babies, of the numerous Black children who grow up literally or metaphorically under the steel heel of a police boot. It is the story of our families who since the Middle Passage have had to suffer the unimaginable, but when they kill our children, our mothers and fathers, we are expected to forgive, to be peaceful in the face of horrific violence. We are asked to respect a law that cannot recognize our humanity, that cannot provide redress, and when time and time again the law demonstrate it will never protect us, that it will never hold those individuals and systems that harm us accountable. We are expected to peddle a narrative that the system works, that justice will prevail. Mr. Floyd's brother lamented, I just don't understand what more we've got to go through in life, man. People are in the streets today because years ago we marched peacefully and belted Negro spirituals hoping they would recognize our humanity. We wore afros like crowns, remembering our beauty. We, we put our fists in the air, demonstrating our strength. We declared that our lives matter in every gorgeous dimension, demanding they stop killing us in the streets and in our homes with impunity. People are in the streets today because despite all of the people who lost their lives, literally and figuratively, in this fight for black life, the struggle continues. So, let's stop saying racism killed George Floyd. And I would add 
Ahmad Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, uh, Trayvon Martin. You add a name. You know there are many. Or worse yet, that a racist police officer killed George Floyd. George Floyd was killed because anti-blackness is endemic to and is central to how all of us make sense of the social, economic, historical, and cultural dimensions of human life. And that's the end of that article. But I will say this before I sign off and end this episode. If we believe that the only way to think about life is based on the white power structure dynamic, then it will continue. But the truth is, the truth, T-R-U-T-H, the truth is, there is and there are other ways to view life, an African-centered way of viewing life, a holistic way of viewing life, can and will save our life. Ashe.